It's a little bit of a different perspective for me today because I don't know if you know this, uh, but my name's Derek. I'm the worship pastor here at Lake Hills, so normally I'm on the other side of things helping lead you guys in worship, and today, different perspective, have the opportunity to, uh, to bring the message today, which we're excited to dive into this morning. Um, hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving. I know that we did at our family. Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays, and yet, with the end of Thanksgiving comes another favorite. We all know Christmas is right around the corner, and you heard earlier today that we've got Believe premiere happening tonight, which is super exciting. And again, just wanna echo, we would love for you guys just to share this as much as you can. Uh, the message of hope, we would love to get out to as many people as possible. Our team did a great job putting this together and, uh, and we would love to get that, that out. So also, we're in a Christmas series that we are gonna be continuing this morning called Thrill of Hope. And every week we've been taking a look at a popular Christmas carol. We've been taking a look at the story behind the carol, what it is that we're singing about, why these are such a big deal. The first week we looked at Oh Holy Night, Last week, What Child Is This, that Roger just crushed musically. If you haven't seen that, I think you can find it maybe on social media. It was incredible, did a great job. Today, we are looking at potentially the most famous and well-known of all of the Christmas carols. Today, we are talking about Silent Night. Silent Night. Silent Night uh, is a big deal. The reason why I would say it's maybe the most popular Christmas carol is because I would be willing to bet that anybody listening to this in the room, maybe online, uh, would be able to probably recite at least one verse of Silent Night. And we'll put the lyrics up here for you to be able to test your knowledge here. But Silent Night's also a big deal for us at Lake Hills Church because we sing this at every Christmas service, every Believe service. We do the candles or the glow sticks. It's honestly one of my favorite moments, not just of Christmas, but that I look forward to of the, whole, of the whole year. Because you can look around the dark room, you can see the candles in the air, and it's a picture of unity as the church. And so um, it's a big deal for us. Uh, we're gonna talk about what it is that we're singing about when we sing Silent Night. And spoiler alert, like most every other Christmas carol, we are talking about the birth of Jesus. But more than that, I wanna look at today why Silent Night is such a big deal. And before we do that, I actually wanna dive into some history. I know we've got some history buffs in here that have been enjoying uh, looking at the history behind the songs. This was interesting for me because I didn't know this story about Silent Night uh, until I started to look into it. So here we go. We're gonna dive into some history and then we're gonna get going. Silent Night was written in 1816 by a guy named Joseph Moore. And Joseph was a pastor in Austria and he wrote the song uh, but also didn't do anything with it. It wrote it as a poem, didn't do anything with it until two years later on Christmas Eve, 1818. And poor Joseph realizes that he needs to come up with a song to do for his Christmas Eve midnight mass that they were having. And I gotta stop the story right here because I gotta ask the question, where are my procrastinators at? Who would be willing to admit in front of God and everyone else that they wait until the last minute before they do something. If you're sitting next to a family member that you know that's the case and their hand isn't up, go ahead and point them out right in front of everybody, okay? And I know my procrastinator is gonna say, it's not a big deal as long as it gets done. And that may be true, and this was true of Joseph. He waited until the last minute to plan this service, and so he's rummaging through his house, through his drawers, to find something that he can use for this song. And he comes across this poem that he had written a couple years earlier, and he's so desperate to turn it into a song he walks three miles to a friend's house who is a musician, and he begs this friend to help him put this uh, poem to music. 
Now, the name of his friend was a guy named Franz Gruber. Franz Gruber, not to be confused with Hans Gruber, who is the infamous villain in the best Christmas movie of all time, Die Hard, which I also think I might have referenced the last time I was up. It was such a great movie, but that's another message for another day. Franz Gruber was a musician, and he helps Joseph put this song to music. They perform uh, at their midnight, uh, whatever, Christmas midnight mass thing that they have for the first time ever, Silent Night. And fun fact, this may have been the first time that a guitar was used in church. Rumor has it that the church organ was damaged in a flood a couple weeks prior, so they couldn't play it on the piano or the organ. They played this song, Silent Night, on a guitar, and it starts to take off across Europe, across the rest of the world. There's actually a story in World War I of the German army and the British army. The night before battle, you've got an empty battlefield, and each are camped out on their own side, and somebody starts to sing out Silent Night. And it was so familiar that over the next couple minutes, people join in, and by the end of the song, you've got both armies in their own language singing this song together. And I was talking to somebody about that this week, and they actually said that those soldiers eventually had to get transferred because they refused to fight each other the next day because of this experience of peace and unity that was Silent Night. So there's a lot of history wrapped up, even from a worldly perspective, in Silent Night. But today, I wanna look at the biblical history behind this song. And in order to do that, we are gonna take a road trip together that is gonna end up all the way over here by the end of the message. And this is the spoiler alert, this is the end of the story, Silent Night. We're gonna take a road trip. Before we do that, I wanna know where my road trip people are. If you love road trips, give me a wave. I, I'm guessing it's gonna be half and half. Uh, some people love it, some people hate it. I love about the first hour, and then I'm ready to get to where I'm going, right? But some people love this road trip, and I don't know if you're planning on traveling over the Christmas holidays. Uh, my wife and I are gonna go visit family after our last Christmas Eve service takes place here. My family's in Kansas City, hers is in Oklahoma City, right off I-35, and so we can hit both in the same trip. And here's what we found to be true about our road trips that we take that I'm sure maybe will be true for some of you as well. And that is uh, that when we take this road trip, there are certain mile marker stops that we know that we're gonna make. We know that we're gonna stop in some of the same places every time we make this road trip. And I'll give you an example. When we travel for Christmas, we are gonna stop before we leave the state of Texas at mile marker number 303 off of I-35. Does anybody happen to know? I would be super surprised if you know this, but does anybody know what's off of mile marker 303? Hey, we know it because we're in Texas. We are stopping at Bucky's. And maybe you're joining online and you're not from Texas. You don't know what the big deal is about Bucky's. We don't have time to get into it. It is that awesome, but research it. Bucky's is incredible, and we are going to stop there every single time. And we have got other stops along the way that we know that we're going to stop there because of how big of a deal they are. And I'm sure that you can think on your road trips that you take, those mile markers that you're going to stop for you. And here's the deal. If we miss out on those mile marker stops, maybe we miss the exit or maybe we don't have time to stop, it's not the same trip. It's not the same fun, enjoyable experience. We don't look forward to it as much because of how big of a deal these are for our road trips. And this is true for road trips, but I also believe that it is true of the Bible in an even bigger way. And what I mean by that is the Bible ultimately tells one story. The whole of the Bible tells one story. It's about the person of Jesus. 
And leading up to Jesus, especially in the Old Testament, there are mile marker events that if you miss them, if you take them out of the Bible or if you miss the significance, the Bible's not the same story. It doesn't read the same. And so today, with the rest of the time that we have left, I wanna take a look at these mile marker events that eventually lead up to Silent Night. Because when we talk about Silent Night being a big deal, I believe it's impossible to truly understand the significance of that without first understanding the significance of the things that lead up to Silent Night. So that's what we're gonna dive into today. You guys ready to go on a road trip this morning? Awesome, seatbelts on, here we go. Anybody wanna take a guess at the first thing that happens in the Bible? Shout it out if you know it. Mile marker one, what happens? Creation, yeah, we got God creating the world in six days. Man is created during this time to be in perfect relationship with God. That's the beginning of the story, so we're gonna use that as a given. And the first stop that we're gonna make after creation is this right here. It's called sin. We're gonna talk about that for a second. And as we go through each of these, we're gonna talk about the approximate date, we're gonna talk about the event, uh, on the screen, there'll be where you can find it in scripture. And by the end of this point, we're gonna talk about the significance of these events as it relates to Silent Night. So what we have happening here, this is the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, and God goes to them and says, you can eat any fruit of the garden except that one. And the reason why I'm gonna estimate this as year one, we actually don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before, uh, before sin happens, but the reason I'm gonna say it's probably the year one is because I'm a father, and I haven't been a father for very long, but even in my short amount of time as being a dad, here's what I know to be true about kids. Anytime you tell them, don't do that, what do they do? They do that, yes, exactly. And most of the time, it's sooner rather than later. So I'm guessing Adam and Eve are probably the same, that they did this sooner. They do that, and they experience some punishment, sin enters the world, and here's the significance that we'll put on the screen for this point. The perfect relationship between God and man is broken, right? Many of us know that perfect relationship between God and man is broken, and the rest of the story of the Bible is about what God does to restore that broken relationship, and we're going to see that as we move on. Continuing on to our next stop, and guys, I am actually not very envious of the fact that I'm not making this journey for real because we're not going to make another stop for almost 2,000 years so I hope you got your bathroom breaks in while we were at Adam and Eve's place. Almost 2,000 years later, we're gonna stop here with a guy named Abraham. 1,948 approximate years after creation. We got a guy named Abraham, and it is worth noting, we are only looking at the major stops. Obviously, things happen in these 2,000 years between the two where we've got sub-stories and Bible characters of their own that are great as well, but we're just taking a look at the main things that lead up to Silent Night. So we got a guy named Abraham, and Abraham, the Bible says, is a righteous guy, and so God comes to Abraham, and he makes him a promise. And the promise that God makes Abraham is really twofold. It's number one, he says, Abraham, I'm going to cause a nation to come out of you and your descendants, that I am gonna be their God, and they are gonna be my people. And the second part of the promise was, I'm gonna give them a land of their own to inhabit. So a two-part promise where the significance of this event, again, we'll put this on the screen, and I would encourage you guys, take notes as we go along, because it's gonna be real cool to see those all on the same page when we get to the end. But the significance is this, in the mile marker stop of Abraham, and that is that relationship is established between God and his people. So first you've got the perfect relationship that's broken, and then God comes and says, I'm gonna establish a new relationship between you, my people, 
and me as God. And so this is what we see happen here. And the rest of the Old Testament, uh, for those that know this, follows the story of God's people, the Israelites that come out of Abraham. And this is why it's so significant. But here's the deal. Generations go by before the Israelites experience the fulfillment of the promise. Abraham doesn't see it happen in his lifetime. Abraham's son Isaac doesn't see it happen. Isaac's son Jacob doesn't see it happen. Even Jacob's son Joseph doesn't see it happen. And so time passes where the fulfillment is not seen. But we're going to make another stop over here with, I mentioned his name. We're going to talk about Joseph for a second. And Joseph is possibly one of my favorite Bible stories, and a lot happens to Joseph. Joseph is the youngest of 12 brothers, which you know is already setting up a story of drama, because how could it not with 12 brothers, right? And it gets worse, because the Bible says that God, uh, or actually, Joseph's dad loves Joseph more than the rest of his brothers. So you've got his brothers that are extremely jealous of Joseph. They actually want to kill him, but decide better of it. Instead, they decide to sell Joseph into slavery to the Egyptians. So poor Joseph is a slave in Egypt, and he goes on this up and down journey where he starts as a slave, but the Bible says that the hand of the Lord was with him, gave him success in everything that he did, and so he gets elevated to second in command of a prominent Egyptian official's household. Then somebody makes a false accusation about Joseph. He lands in prison, spends a couple years in prison, and yet by the end of the story, God elevates him again to second in command, this time of all of Egypt. And the way that the story ends with Joseph is his brothers come to Egypt. They bow down before the second in command of all the Egyptians, not realizing this was the same brother that they had sold into slavery. And you think a story of vengeance is coming you think that Joseph's going to lay the hammer down on his brothers, but instead the story ends differently, and kind of unexpectedly, because the story of Joseph ends with forgiveness. He forgives his brothers with reconciliation, and he brings his brothers and his entire family to settle with him in Egypt. And we'll put this on the screen because that's the significance of this story, and that is that God's people move, Israelites move, and they settle in Egypt under Pharaoh. And this is what actually introduces us to our next event because what happens is Joseph dies and the Pharaoh dies and the Bible says that multiple other Pharaohs come and they go. But then a new Pharaoh takes the throne that the Bible says knew nothing of Joseph and what he had done for Egypt. But what the new Pharaoh does see is that God's people are growing in number. They're becoming a threat to Egypt. And so the new Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites, makes them slaves of Egypt and that's where we meet our next character here. You may be able to guess his name. This guy's name is Moses. Moses. We're actually going to cover a lot more than just Moses because we're going to take this through Moses all the way through the promised land. So this is kind of a real estimate somewhere in the middle of, of there. But Moses, if you've seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, great movie. It's the story of Moses. Uh, he was born as an Israelite. He grew up in the house of Pharaoh, and God comes to Moses and he says, Moses, you're gonna be the guy who I'm gonna use to free my people. He said, you're gonna go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and, and Moses does that, and many of us know the story. Pharaoh says, uh-uh, ain't gonna happen, and then God brings 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. This is the movie Prince of Egypt. It's a real cool story, and finally Pharaoh says, okay, you can lead the people out of Egypt. Moses does that, leads them to the edge of the Red Sea, 
God parts the Red Sea for the Israelites to walk through on dry ground, saves the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. And now the Israelites, led by Moses, are on the other side of the Red Sea, wandering the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. And here's where we're going to make a little bit of a stop. Exit A, I guess. They stop at a mountain. They camp out at a mountain. And Moses goes up on top of the mountain. He meets with God face to face. And then he comes down the mountain with, shout it out if you know it, Ten Commandments, yes, Ten Commandments and the Book of the Law. And what the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Law are is it's basically God telling his people for the first time, because I'm your God and because you are my people, here's how I want you to live. And he gives them instructions. Uh, the Book of the Law can be found in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books that are sometimes hard to read through because of how much detail and instruction are in here. But it's so important for the Israelites to live according to this book of the law. So they receive the law and they head on their way to the promised land. We're gonna shorten a lot of this because a lot of stuff happens on the way to the promised land. A lot of years go by, but eventually they're allowed to step foot into Canaan, the promised land, but yet they do it with a new leader. There's a transition that happens. Moses dies before they enter the promised land. A new guy steps on scene to lead the people. His name's Joshua. Joshua's a good dude. He, for the most part, is able to keep the eyes of the people on God. Uh, he does a good job leading. They're conquering. They're settling in the promised land. And things are looking good for the Israelites under Joshua. But then what happens is Joshua dies, and then things start to go downhill. The Bible says that after Joshua dies, the people of Israel forget the promises that they had made to the Lord when they got the law. They start to worship other gods and they get punished and they begin this cycle of getting punished because they disobeyed and then they'll repent and then they disobey again and they get punished and then they repent and it kind of leads us to the significance of this point here, which is three parts, we'll put it on the screen. A, the Israelites are now free, they're not under Egypt anymore. B, God gives expectations for his people, the law that we talked about, and then C, the Israelites begin this cycle of obeying and then rebelling, obeying and then rebelling. We're gonna see that happen throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So here the Israelites are in the promised land, but after a while they start to want something that they don't have. They start to look around at every other nation around them, and every other nation has what? Anyone wanna take a guess? Kings, yes, every other nation has got a king. Israel doesn't have a king. So they go to God and they say, hey God, we want a king to lead our nation. In other words, they're telling God, hey, God, you're not enough. We want a man to lead in our place. And God actually gives them what they want, even though it wasn't the best thing for them. And that is such an interesting concept. It's another message for another day. But sometimes God will actually give you what you want, even if it's not the best thing for you. And it's such a great reminder for us to always keep our eyes on what God wants for us rather than what we want for us because oftentimes what we want for us is not the best for us. And this happens here. They get a king and a new guy steps on scene here, moving on to our next mile marker, which is 2957. We've got a guy named Saul who steps on the scene and Saul becomes the first king 
of Israel. And during Saul's time, we were also introduced to a guy named David. He's actually not a guy named David. He's a kid named David. He's a shepherd. And in this story, we also have uh, another famous Bible story, uh, David and Goliath, right, where David slays Goliath and saves the Israelites. And actually, uh, Saul gets really jealous of that. And that's really important because it's kind of spirals Saul off into a season of depression and jealousy and anger. And Saul spends the rest of his life actually trying to kill David. He doesn't get the opportunity. Saul passes away in battle. And David becomes the next king of Israel. Now, David does pretty well for a while. He actually does uh, real well for a while. They're conquering land, expanding their territory. David, you know, writes most of the songs, the Psalms. But then David makes a series of pretty big mistakes, and even more than mistakes, David sins against God. And if you know the story of David and Bathsheba, David commits adultery, uh, and, and then in an effort to hide it, he tries to and actually succeeds in killing Bathsheba's husband. He thinks he gets away with it, but God knows about it. God sends a prophet to confront David, and David kind of confesses to what he has done. And you think this is the end of the story for David. You think there's no way that somebody, the leader of God's people, can come back from this. But something really unexpected happens here, and it gives you a glimpse into the character and the nature of God as well. Because, here's the deal, God not only forgives David. David is truly repentant, and he experiences some punishment for what he did. But God not only forgives David, but he restores David. So David is allowed to remain king. He marries Bathsheba. They have a son named Solomon. And this is going to lead us to the significance of this passage because what's happening here is if you go all the way over here to Silent Night, the birth of Jesus, and if you trace the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to this moment here, you're gonna see that Jesus comes from the line of David. And this is why this is so unexpected. And you can put that on the screen, that's the significance. Jesus comes from the line of David. The reason this is so unexpected is you gotta remember, David screwed up. David sinned in this, he made a mess of things, there was brokenness, there was sin, there was ashes of a story here, and yet, God takes that, he restores it, he makes it into something beautiful and purposeful. Guys, this is a song that we were singing earlier today, Graves into Gardens, where he takes dead things, he makes them alive, he makes beauty from ashes. This is what happened here in the story of David. And the significance, again, is that Jesus comes from the line of David. Moving on to our next uh, mile marker, David's son, who I said was named Solomon, is the next guy that we're gonna talk about for just a minute. This is about 3,011 years from creation, approximately. And Solomon becomes king after David, and Solomon is, uh, is what is kind of known as one of the last great kings of Israel. And Solomon does a good job for a long time, too. He's got a lot of significant events. He builds the temple, which was a big deal. He writes uh, most of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. He leads the people fairly well. He had his own issues, and we see at the end of his story, the end of his life, he kind of goes downhill a little bit. But for the most part, Solomon was a great king, and yet the significance that we're gonna talk about doesn't really happen during his lifetime. It's more about what happens when Solomon dies. Because something really important to the nation of Israel happens when Solomon dies, and that is that the nation splits into two. 
So what happens is Solomon dies, and then two groups of people are really trying to get at the throne. It causes a split, and you've got now the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah that used to be one God's people, who are now two, they go to war against each other. And this is chaos for the nation of Israel. You've got sons that are killing their fathers for a chance at the throne. You've got kings in both kingdoms sitting on the king's chair, getting assassinated pretty quick. The turnover to be a king is pretty high. You don't really want that job in this time period. This is chaos for Israel. You think our political climate right now is a little bit rough. It's got nothing on what's happening in Israel during this time. And the majority of the kings that take the throne are evil. And because of that, they continue to lead God's people step after step away from him. We'll put this on the screen. That is the significance, unfortunately, after the death of Solomon, is that God's people continue to take step after step away from him. And that's a pretty big deal. And it actually leads us into our next mile marker, approximately 3217. We're gonna talk about the prophets here. And it's important to note that this is really an estimated uh, year because the length of the prophets actually um, spanned hundreds of years. So we just picked something in the middle to make it nice there. But here's what's happening in the prophets. Because the Israelites were no longer listening to God and following God, God sends various uh, numbers of men to basically be the mouthpiece for God. And the prophets really do three things. The prophets, one, they tell Israel, hey, you guys are off track. Remember the law over here that we got with Moses? You guys aren't living up to the law. Secondly, they tell the Israelites, here's what's gonna happen if you continue down the route that you're on. Here's the punishment that you're gonna experience if you don't repent. And if it were me and I was God or I was one of the prophets, I would have left it there at punishment. But the third thing that we see happen that also is kind of unexpected that the prophets start to talk about is they start to talk about hope. And they talk about the hope that comes after the punishment. They say, even though, Israel, you're gonna experience punishment, which we're gonna see in a second, even though you experience that, at the end of the day, God is gonna send a Messiah, a Savior, he's gonna redeem his people, and he is gonna restore you as a nation. And that is the significance of what happens in the prophets, because here, we'll put it on the screen, for really the first time, God's people begin to hear about a savior who would come. Again, pointing towards, we're almost there, pointing towards Silent Night, God's people begin to hear about a savior who would come. Now, some of us know that the Israelites don't listen to the prophets for the most part. They continue in their action, and as a result of that, we hit our next mile marker in this journey. And this is what we're gonna call here the fall of Jerusalem and exile into Babylon. And this is approximately 3,403 years since creation. It's also 597 BC. So if you wanna do the math, this is where we're at in the story. And what happens here is because Israel does not listen to the prophets, they experience punishment. And that punishment was that God sends a nation called Babylon with a king called Nebuchadnezzar to lay siege to Jerusalem to conquer Jerusalem, to kill a bunch of people, and the people that they don't kill, they carry off with them to be slaves in Babylon. 
This is the punishment that was spoken of by the prophets. It's what the Israelites are enduring in this moment. And during this time period, you've got a couple stories that are taking place in the Bible that might sound familiar. You've got the story of Daniel and the lion's den that happened here. You've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who, who don't bow down to the idol. They get thrown into the fiery furnace. God rescues them from the furnace. Historically, you've got the Persian Empire that's taking over uh, and conquering the Babylonians. You've got the story of Queen Esther, uh, who God uses to save her people from an annihilation. You've got all these things happening during this time, but here's the significance of what happens during the fall as a result of punishment. Put it on the screen here. Israel loses what was promised. Israel loses what was promised. So remember, we go over here to, here he is, Abraham. You remember what the promise was? Twofold, that they're gonna be a nation and that they're gonna have a land of their own. And the punishment over here is that they lose both of those. They're no longer a nation. They're in Babylon now. They don't have a land of their own. It actually reminds me of the, um, there's an office episode where uh, Michael Scott is getting roasted by his staff. I don't know how many office fans we got. It's like one of my favorite shows, love it. But he's getting roasted and Dwight even if you don't watch The Office, you probably know who Dwight is. Dwight looks over at Michael and he goes, you short, pathetic little man, you don't have any friends or family or land. And it's funny in the episode, but it's not funny here to the Israelites because this is exactly what is happening to them. They don't have any friends or allies that are gonna bail them out. They're not a family or a nation anymore. They belong to Babylon. And they obviously don't have any land because now they're slaves. It is a pretty hopeless seeming situation for them, but yet... Even in the midst of punishment, there is hope. And the hope is that God continues speaking. And you see that in the stories that I mentioned. Daniel in the lion's den. God rescues Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The story of you know, Queen Esther. God is there. There's even a guy named Nehemiah who gets uh, to go back to Jerusalem and start to repair the walls of Jerusalem, which signifies hope and vision and direction again for God's people. So things are, are still hopeful in the midst of this punishment season, and then something happens. And that's something that happens in our last mile marker moment before we get to the finale. Here's what happens. 3,600, silence. Silence. What does that mean? It means that God stops speaking. There's no more prophets. There's no more vision, revelation from the Lord. There's no more wisdom, direction. There's no more God saying, hey, I'm there with you. You've got this. There's no more God saying, hey, here's what you can expect in the future. There is nothing but silence. And you guys can do the math from 3,600 to 4,000. It's not a small season of silence. We're talking about 400 years of God not speaking. When you think about how long that is, 400 years, that was a long time. If you were born, really, in any of that span, you're growing up your entire life without any interaction with God. You are born, no interaction with God, then you die. And it starts over for another generation. This has got to be the most meaningless and hopeless feeling for God's people. And that's what it is. That is the significance of silence. Put this up on the screen. God stops speaking. We call that hopelessness. Because for all they knew, God ain't there. 
for all they knew, God gave up on them, moved on. For all they knew, God abandoned them, left them alone. I wonder how many of you have felt that maybe in a season of your life where you go through something and you wonder, where is God in the midst of this? Because he ain't here. Now we know, because we know the end of this story that it wasn't hopeless, that God was there, that he was working behind the scenes. And I think that should give us hope in the seasons of life that we go through where it feels like God is silent. He may be silent, but it doesn't mean he's absent. He's there working behind the scenes in our lives and what he was doing behind the scenes in the 400 years of silence was the setup for that. We finally got there, guys. It was a big journey, but we finally got to the finale, silent night, the birth of Jesus. Why was this such a big deal? I know many of you probably can guess that we were going here, and it may sound a little bit cliche, but it's the truth. And that is that silent night was not silent. This is why Silent Night is such a big deal. It wasn't silent. It was actually breaking the silence of 400 years of God not speaking to his people. It was breaking the silence. The coming of Jesus was a fulfillment of the promise of salvation. Remember the prophets, the hope. And ultimately, Silent Night and the coming of Jesus was the solution for where we started. Over here was sin. You remember how I said with sin that after sin happens, the rest of the story of the Bible was what God did to make that relationship perfect again. There it is. Silent night, the end of the story, the coming of Jesus. And the significance of this, last thing that we'll put on the screen here. God speaks again, and he speaks hope. They're coming out of hopelessness, and yet God speaks hope. And this is the reason why Silent Night was such a big deal for them. But here's why it's such a big deal for us, because we've just gone through a whole journey of God's people. And yet, if you don't know this, we also have our own journey with God that starts after this. Because the hope for us is that, the Bible says that with the coming of Jesus, it opened the door for anyone to be able to believe, to step into what's called salvation and life. We're in a series called Thrill of Hope. There it is. There's the hope. And this is why the carol Silent Night means so much and it is such a big deal. And I wanna do something this morning. Um, I really wanna speak to two groups of people. And if we could do this, if we could bow our heads, close our eyes together this morning, the first group of people that I wanna speak to is Maybe those who have already started a journey with Jesus. Maybe you have accepted him as your Lord and Savior in the past. And what I want to ask you to do in this moment is for you to think about that journey for you since then. What are the mile marker moments in your life and your relationship with Jesus that you've experienced since stepping into a relationship with him? Think about the seasons of your life, your situations that were tough, that were challenging, that God showed up and proved himself faithful in. Think about the times that God just did something in your life that you'll never forget. Think about maybe seasons that you've had in the past or maybe a season that you're in right now where maybe you've taken your eyes off Jesus like the Israelites did. Here's the good news for that. It's really simple to course correct. 
You just gotta make the decision today that says, hey, I'm gonna do what's right. I'm gonna stop doing what's not right. And it's as easy as that. And then you gotta do the same thing tomorrow. And that's what gets tougher. And then you gotta do the same thing the day after that. And this is the journey of following Jesus. But more importantly than that, I want you to think about what's next. What's the next potential mile marker in this relationship that you have with Jesus? What is your next step? What is it that he wants from you? And while you guys think about that, I wanna speak to the other group of people who maybe have not started a relationship with Jesus yet. Again, like we said, we just did a whole journey of God's people in the Old Testament, but the, the deal is you've got an opportunity to start a journey with him right now. And this is the reason why, as a church, we do everything that we do. It's to give you the opportunity to begin this journey of following Jesus. And the Bible says that it's so easy to do because the greatest significance of Silent Night is that 33 years later, Jesus would go to the cross to die on the cross for your sins, for my sins, to raise to life so that we could be raised to life. And the Bible says the only thing that we have to do to step into a relationship with him, to accept that free gift of salvation is to believe in our heart that he died on the cross, that he raised to life, and then confess with our mouth that he is our Lord. And I wanna lead you in a prayer this morning. So if that's you and you wanna pray that, I wanna invite you to pray this after me quietly to yourself, but pray it to God. Say, God, thank you for loving me enough to send Jesus on that silent night to be born as a baby, to ultimately go to the cross for my sins. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead for me. And today I choose to make you my Lord. Help me to live every day from now on the best that I know how following after you. And with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, I want you to know if you made that decision, this is the best decision that you will ever make in your life. We wanna celebrate that with you. And I'm gonna talk about what we can do to help in next steps in just a minute, but I also wanna ask you to do this. If you prayed that prayer this morning, just right now, slip your hand up in the air. Nobody else is looking around. Just slip your hand up in the air and say, I made that decision today to follow Jesus. We'd love to know that. We'd love to celebrate it with you. And our tradition here at Lake Hills is as you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together and say, welcome home. Welcome home.